Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. One of the vital things about this is that, one, the problem with economics isn't just that it's wrong, it's that it's creatively incredibly limited. Behavioral science makes it permissible in a business or policy-making setting to suggest counterintuitive things. Yes. Hello Nudges, welcome to another episode of Obehave. My name is Mike Hughes and today I'm with another member of the Obehave team, Isabel Pow Pow Power. How are you Isabel? I'm good thanks Mike, how are you? Good, thank you. Now, when was the last time you changed your mind? I'm always changing my mind Mike, probably about 15 times today. Nice, yes. Um, I think I change my mind a lot. Just not sure if I do. <laughs> um, so the reason that we asked this question is we invited the team from the Change My Mind podcasting. Yeah, I was really excited to get them in today. So Alex and Ali joined us for a conversation with Rory um, on changing our minds. Alex and Ali host a podcast when they invite a whole range of guests uh, from professors to people in the industry um, and ask them why they've changed their mind on something and explore the psychology around it. Cool. So we discuss loads of things, um, education, um, policy, and then we asked everyone what they changed their minds about. Now, one thing that I wouldn't change my mind about is buying a nudge stock ticket. Uh, so for those who don't know, uh, Nudgestock is our festival of behavioural science. It is back for another year and it seems like this is our most popular year uh, because early bird tickets sold out in about 25 minutes um, last week. So go to nudgestock.co.uk. Uh, this year we've got Gigerenza, the father of heuristics. Um, We've got Trisha Wang. Uh, Rory does the keynote as per usual. It's going to be amazing. Go to nudgestock.co.uk if you want to buy your tickets. Now, let's cut to the audio. So, hi to Alex, Ali and Rory. Thanks for co- so much for coming in today, Alex and Ali. Um, to start, it'd be really great, Alex and Ali, to hear a bit about the history of your podcast and why you think it's important to focus on changing minds. Yeah, so I guess our podcast is called Change Change My Mind and it's all about asking people about a time they changed their mind and why, in particular to ask leaders. And it ties into political depolarisation, I guess. So I happened to be at Stanford for the year just immediately after Brexit and as Trump was elected and we ran a course or I ended up partly teaching there. And one of the um, key questions that a student asked was a bunch of Trump supporters were there was, what have you changed your mind on and why? And you could feel the mood of the room change and people become much less polarised as it became clear that actually engagement was worthwhile. And that, mm-hmm. that and, and you know, my observation I would make, I haven't tested this yet, but is that progressives found it even harder to be open-minded than some of the conservatives mm-hmm. in the room because they were much more wedded to principles on, on morality. And that then became a bit of an obsession for us. I knew Alex anyway, and I bounced this idea off her of almost setting up an organisation and a podcast attached to that mm-hmm. concept of if you are more open-minded, that will begin to start to solve our political polarisation problems. I was going to say, for me, um, when Ali you know, offered 
this opportunity, I was like, hell yes. So I'm a, I'm a Conservative councillor. Um, I've been a member of the Conservative since my early 20s. Now, being Conservative, being under 70, maybe even under 80, being a woman is not, not popular. Um, but even in, over until, the... Until the time it comes to a vote. Until the time it comes to a vote, of course. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of shy Tories. There's a lot of shy Tories, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm kind of a shy Tory, but the reaction was always, when I first started, so this is about 15 years ago, you know, fairly curious and interested, like, why the frig are you a Conservative? Anyway, roll on to 2010 elections, and I was out with my... Uh, so I was standing in West London, again, at a council level, out with my mum, who's a scouser, lifelong Labour, or Lib Dem, <laughs> definitely not a Tory voter. And we were bricked. Uh, so we had our little blue rosettes on and we were, you know, we had brick, bricks hurled oh at us. And then since then, 2010, you know, in, in workplace, in social circles. Which is interesting because if the extreme right did that, that would have gone on to the front of the papers. Ex- yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. yeah so it's interesting the reaction, this kind of asymmetric almost yeah. reaction to, to the right. Anyway, so I just found that these feelings have, have gone from a kind of ideological dislike to now it's like a really visceral hatred of, uh, of 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 the right, and equally, I think it goes goes the other well, way. People as well. who are different, yeah, people who are Almost. different. So um, yeah, so when Ali said, oh, you know, said come come on board, I was like, hell hell yes, let's figure out what you know why this is happening and what we can yeah. do to try and, and reduce this polarization. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because um, one of the things that seems to have changed, at least Jonathan Haidt comments on this is that it used to be that the left understood the right better than the right understood the left. And that seems to have reversed. And so if you ask people to complete sort of political surveys and you ask right-wing people to reply to the survey as a liberal would, uh, they make a pretty good stab at it. But weirdly, uh, essentially, if you ask liberals to complete the survey with the mindset of conservative, um, the mindset they posit is nothing like the conservative mindset. I mean, it's not quite as extreme as I want to kill kittens, but it's not <laughs> far off that kind of, uh, you know, I mean, absolutely extreme vilification. Yeah. Which is strange, particularly as I would guess, roughly speaking, if you ignore means for a second and only talk about ends, yeah. the kind of country in which most people on the left and most people on the right would like to live in in terms of an end, ignore yeah. the means for a second, yeah. they're not actually very different, mm-hmm. I would argue. Um, in fact, probably less than they would have been at any point in history. Uh, you know, it's probably, a, you know, the left would be a bit more Scandinavian and the right would be a bit more Australian yeah. in terms of the countries they regard as model. But I mean, you know, uh, those aren't, you know, massive differences yeah. in the scheme of things. And so there's something strange there. Height's theory is very interesting, which is that Um, the left think that because the right don't care exclusively about caring and justice and equality, therefore they don't care about them at all. So essentially any political debate which isn't focused on the principle of caring is viewed essentially by the left with incomprehension and therefore they attribute to the right's disagreement all sorts of weird malign motives, which may or may not be accurate. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I mean, principles of, kind of you know, what would be kind of, you know, hierarchy, ex- you know, respect for sacred things, yeah. those kind of things completely baffle um, people on the left. Well, I guess the, the classic one he, he draws attention to is this idea of equality, isn't it? So, 
for the left, equality is everyone, outcome. is outcome. Mm. Whereas for people on the right, it's actually what you put, it's like proportionate to what you put in. So what you put in should equal what you get out. It's kind of the idea of dessert, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's super, super interesting. Actually, John Height was a, was a guest on, yeah. our, on our podcast a couple of months ago. And one of the, po- one of the points he made on why, you, why you're seeing this increasing polarisation is actually more just focused on diversity. Mm-hmm. diversity inclusion in the workplace, in politics, and the world. And what he was saying was, you know, the very fact of drawing attention to the differences amongst people, so gender, race, age, political group, actually makes it worse because you're drawing attention to what divides us, mm-hmm. not what we have in common. So your point, Rory, about, you know, it might be that actually the left and the right, we have quite a good idea of what we all want to get to, the ends. Yes. But by highlighting how we're different, that just pulls people, pulls people mm-hmm. apart. Who bricked you, by the way? Who were the people who bricked you? They were Labour, Labour supporters. Young? Young, yeah, young. Because the weird thing is, you wouldn't get that in a Welsh mining town, I think. I mean, I mean you, you might. No, you would, I say, as a Welsh person, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had all sorts on the door. I had, I had like... I had naked men like pausing films that over 18 should like all sorts of random stuff. And I do know Tories who had a really difficult time in the valleys, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, uh, in particular... <laughs> But it's interesting that it's, they were young, which I think is also significant. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know what jobs they did. Yeah. Um, you know, because I, I also worry about the expansion of higher education. Yeah. Um, in that, generally, you don't find much of... It's very strange that the most extreme weirdness manifests itself in university politics. And by and large, when people enter the workplace they realise that life's actually a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> the university allows you to believe ridiculously um, over... I mean, there's a great George Orwell quote, which is, some things are so ridiculous, only an intellectual can believe them. <laughs> and uh, it is strange that the, the weirdest manifestation in the US, and to some extent in, yeah. in Britain, of what you might call political extremism taken to a kind of literally an absurd... Uh, exaggerated form where Peter Tatchell has no platform, you know, because yes. his views on transsexuality are insufficiently purist to allow yeah. him to speak, despite the fact that he was, you know, whatever you say, he was pioneering something when it was massively unfashionable to do so. And um, uh, so there's an, inter- there's an interesting question there, which is, um, the, the, the question of age and the question of educational level. And as you get older, first of all, you realise life's complicated. Mm. And so if you go to a workplace, what you'll realise is there are actually some quite nice Tory people kicking around and there are some ostensibly left-wing people who are actually total shits. So your very Manichaean worldview, which you can believe mm-hmm. in a university, doesn't stand up to a week in McDonald's, actually. Because, uh, you know, as I said, you know, it's much more complicated than that. And it's only in a completely artificial hothouse environment like a university, perhaps, or possibly the public sector, (laughs) where you can actually believe something so weird and so extreme. You also have the problem of urbanisation, which means that people live in an age group bubble. Um, And it's perfectly possible in London. So in a weird kind of way, London is obviously more diverse than Cornwall. Yeah. But actually, the life of a Londoner might be less diverse than the life of a Cornish. Yeah, because they speak to less, they have their networks. Because you have very narrow, so your, your basic peer group is people more or less within three or four years of you in mm-hmm. age, yeah. who work in a very similar workplace to you. Yeah. If you go to a Cornish pub, okay, it's less ethnically diverse than a Londoner, I think we can agree with that. Yeah. But in terms of everything from age to socioeconomic group, it's actually much more varied. And a typical pub in East Kent or Cornwall will 
have the resident Nazi, the resident Marxist, <laughs> and all shades in between. Yeah. And those people effectively, you know, kind of rub along. Yeah. And yet it's possible in London to create such a rarefied bubble within which you live that there's actually virtually no feedback. I mean, you're allowed, and then, then what happens is Cass Sunstein's law of polarisation of groups kicks Absolutely, in. Absolutely, yeah. I was going to say, so, so that make, that's, that's actually really worrying. So for the first time in history, younger generations have never been more enclosed and more separated from older generations than before. And social media and the kind of, you know, the bubble mm. that that creates is arguably making that worse. Well, and you add to that, of course, that this generation is likely to be the first one that's poorer than their parents, just in terms of the way that I'm not sure that's yeah. true, by the way. This is, by the way, a really interesting fact. Um, yeah. I, I can't speak for the UK data. Yeah. But an economist called, um, uh, who runs thing, uh, does a thing called, called Russ Roberts, and he has a podcast called Econ Talk. Yeah. And he looked at all the data which has been presented by Piketty and others, yeah. essentially, shows that the poorest decile of the population aren't getting significantly richer. They may even have gone slightly backwards. Whereas, uh, you know, the richest decile, the richest quartile or whatever, um, are getting richer and richer. And he says that, okay, you can quibble with those statistics on all sorts of fairly, you know, uh, that it doesn't account for taxation, redistributive taxation, and the figures only look at earnings, they don't look at um, uh, wealth transfers through the tax system. So that is, that's a fairly major flaw, but he said that's not the killer flaw. The killer flaw is they're all snapshots, which are easier to, to collect and collate mm -hmm. and analyse. They're not longitudinal data of what happens over time. And what happens over time is that you realise that those deciles aren't the same people. Now, <coughs> so in the United States, there are a surprisingly large number of people who, who spend some time in their life in the bottom decile, but will also spend a period of their life in the top quartile of earnings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you think about it, um, some of the things that may be causing that effect, you know, a rise in student numbers, by the way, might be distorting that effect because you have a large number of people who aren't earning very much. Mm -hmm. Now, nobody, I think, sensible would look at a trainee barrister and say he's poor because he's accumulating a load of intellectual capital by training to be a barrister, which he'll be able to turn into a very well-paid job, hopefully. Okay, well, he hopes. Yeah. Or, or she. Or she, exactly. You know. Um, <laughs> and, um, I mean, that's the second time this week I've been corrected on that. Um, Delighted now, to do so. Now, the, point, the, point you, the point you don't do that is because you go, okay, they are temporarily poor. And um, Robert's point is that actually um, uh, you see quite a lot of people falling out of the richest decile. Uh, and you see quite a lot of people going from the bottom decile even to the top. Okay. In the course of life. Yeah. Now, the US is probably has more social mobility than the UK does. It's probably also um, uh, less centred on one particular city in terms of uh, sources of wealth. And maybe there are fewer distortions caused by the housing market in some cases as well. I don't know the UK facts, but it's very, very dangerous to extrapolate because the only thing that matters to us as humans is life as we see it through our own eyes. Now, you could theoretically have a world where every decile is getting poorer over time, but where everybody is getting richer over the course of their life. Mm. Okay. Now, that's unlikely. But what I'm saying is that would probably be a much happier world 
than a world in which every decile was getting richer over time, but you started off rich and got poorer and poorer as you got older. Yeah. So the direction of travel matters to us, yeah. um, and also the you know the the degree of variance matters. And a lot of the statistics about it. Now one reason why it's a very very believable story, which I suggested to Fraser Nelson, is this idea that you start off skint and you stay skint for a long time, mm -hmm. is undoubtedly true for a very significant group of people, which is journalists. Because if anybody's been shat on economically <laughs> uh, over the last 30 years, print journalists, you know, if you were a reasonably successful print journalist in the 1970s, you would possibly live in a street in Primrose Hill, you know, next door to some bankers, you know. And, you know, if you enjoyed other benefits, you probably had a higher status as well than the bankers did in many ways. Um, the fact that, you know, the wages in print journalism are so stagnant probably makes this story of, uh, of people effectively stuck at the bottom very, very plausible if you are a journalist. In the same way that if you're a saddler um, or a pen salesman, you know, your economic prospects aren't going to look great and you're going to imagine those are shared by everybody. I actually went to the <laughs> whole market yesterday and was amazed to discover there was a pen shop which I haven't seen anywhere else. And I went in, and um, they were closing down, okay? And, um, you, know, there are, you, know, you know, if you're a saddler, or if you're an ostler, or a costermonger, or a chimney sweep, you know, economic prospects have got quite a lot worse. It happens that journalists who are one of these groups are a particularly noisy group. Mm. So I, I get, and that explains why journalists might write more about these stories, but that doesn't explain why they resonate so much and why people pick it up. I mean, I just, I'm not, I'm not, I appreciate the critique, but I'm, I'm not certain I'm persuaded by what you're saying. And the stats in the States are, you know, that oh, America's a terrible place to try and get the American dream happening. That's Raj Shetty's work. You know? I mean, no, but what I would say is that, the, I'm certainly not saying for a second there isn't a problem, yeah. by the way. But what I'm saying is that we've got to be very careful in diagnosing the problem because if you define the problem as people who are stuck in a low decile for a long yes, period of time, I agree. that problem is much easier to solve than enriching everybody in the bottom decile because some of those people, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan in management of kicking the can down the road because quite a lot of problems go away of their own accord. Okay. Mm. Now, you know, quite a lot of young people... Is that your management tip? No, I agree. You know, I've learned long and hard that, you know, someone says, we really, really need you to write this thing. So you give up your whole weekend writing it, only discover on Monday it wasn't necessary. Yeah. And you go, shit, yeah. if only I just left it. Yeah. Um, now, what I'm saying is, you need... you um, If you identify the poor as anybody who is poor at any given moment of time, uh, the solution to poverty becomes much, much... Uh, harder to solve than if you say actually um, anybody who's been poor for a significant period of time that there you can focus resources much more intelligently you might also say that no one can gain the system uh, in that way because no one's going to remain poor for 25 years just so they can claim some benefits but I mean there, there are a whole load of interesting questions to ask here I mean one of the interesting ones I would definitely ask having studied behavioral sciences I think welfare should be paid in large lump sums uh, rather than as a drip drip, to some degree. Um, and, you know, I mean, actually the arguments against doing that are sometimes quite patronising, i.e. people will drink it all. Now, I would argue, looking at life through um, the lens of life as it is lived, okay, if you gave me a small amount of money every week and a house to live in, 
the rational thing for me to buy is beer and cigarettes mm. because they deliver a large amount of very um, immediate pleasure and make a difference to my life. My time horizons are, sh are, sh are shrunken by the fact that I'm, only, I, you know, I never have cash flow. Okay. And under those conditions, it, since it's impossible for me to make significant interventions in my life, like moving house or, uh, you know, doing something a bit dramatic to try and secure better-paid employment, you know, actually spending your money on short-term, yeah. um, immediate reward pleasures is totally rational. I mean, middle-class people don't often understand this because middle-class people are obsessed with signalling their capacity for deferred gratification. Uh, you know, to a great extent, you know, people who are economists automatically see saving as being virtuous yeah. and spending money extravagantly as being stupid. I would argue from a point of view of it entirely depends on uh, where you sit. You know, inside of certain economic circumstances, short-term gratification is a perfectly logical approach. So that's kind of interesting in the context of, like, changing minds. Do you think it's easier to change people's minds Focusing on short-term things or focusing on long-term sort um, of stories. Uh, well, I think I think if you give people the wherewithal, I mean, there are experiments in Africa with the effective altruism movement, where you give people a pretty significant amount of money for a, a, a finite amount of time, and the fact that they know that they're getting this money for a finite amount of time, and the fact that it gives them um, enough wiggle room to actually change their lives quite significantly. Um, seems to suggest it's an incredibly effective form of altruism. First of all, because they know what they need better than you do. Because, you know, ultimately... I, I mean, this is one of the, um, one of the areas where I'm a, a, an extremist. I'm extremely Hayekian in that I don't believe people can actually describe what they want. The only way you can find out what people want is you can give them a variety of choices with a price tag attached and see what they do. So you're saying, so preferences are not, you know, deep within... Uh, the, 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 it's more than constructive. Revealed preference, it's almost impossible to predict revealed preference. Yeah. Um, because human perception is highly context-free. Yeah, yeah. But more importantly, human decision-making mostly involves parts of the brain that aren't really connected to the parts of the brain that do the talking. Yeah. So you can get into a lot of weird Wittgenstein stuff about, you know, there are complexities to human decision-making and trade-offs that we make that aren't really even capable of being verbalised. Um, but that's because when, when, when you, one of the things I've learned in advertising is when you talk to people about a decision they're making, um, they effectively use the language of someone who's trying to maximise or optimise. Yeah, they justify. And that's post-rationalisation. Yeah, yeah. Height's very good on this. Yeah. In reality, when they make decisions, they make a much more complicated decision where you have to factor in um, uh, not only... Uh, you have to factor in not only the average outcome of a decision, but the degree of possible variance. And so one of the things you're looking for is what's the maximum downside risk? And I'd argue, by the way, very simply, that's why people buy brands. Because mm -hmm. the Samsung TV probably costs $200 more than the equivalent unbranded or weird manufacturer TV. And people themselves don't understand why they're paying. And the application is, you're paying for the name. Well, a little bit of you may not want your friends to come around and take the piss out of your weird unbranded TV. That's true. But actually, a large part of it is you feel that Samsung's reputational capital... Um, forces them to pay more attention to quality control because they have more skin in the game to lose through selling a bad product. And you're paying a premium not for a better TV, 
but for the reduced probability that the TV is crap. Yeah. That's why we go to McDonald's. Yeah, it's not because it's brilliant, it's because it's really good at not being terrible. At consistently not being yeah. terrible. Yeah. 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 You're reducing uncertainty. Oh, and, and, and by the way, uh, if you look at life mathematically rather than additively, and the assumption of economics is that utility is kind of something you add, mm -hmm. and if you look at utility as something like optionality, which is multiplicative and, and non-ergodic, I think is the technical term, okay, you realise that once you look at things uh, in a multiplicative sense, then reducing variance uh, is important. Because two times two times two times two times two is much bigger than one times three times one times three times one times three. So there's some really, I mean, talk to the, you must talk to Ole Peters at the London Mathematical Laboratory. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Who's been doing some really interesting work on this by effectively suggesting that most of what economists think of as being rational is based on an appalling understanding of statistical mechanics, essentially. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's the assumption that the time average growth rate Sorry, the, the, the ensemble outcome is the same as the um, time series outcome. So what might that mean for polarisation? Or does this have an implication for why people are increasingly... Well, I mean, if, um, first, the first thing I think you've got to say is the question you ask is the most interesting question you can ever ask anybody. Um, it's the most interesting job interview question, I think. What have you changed your mind about? Yeah. Because what's so brilliant about the question is you can't answer nothing without looking like an idiot. Quite well, a lot of people do. They find it really hard. So one of the questions we were like was, is that because people are hardwired to forget when they've changed their mind because they want to, you know, they want to, they want to appear mm. like they haven't, or is it just that people don't change their mind a lot? Well, or also people don't want to admit because quite a few yeah. people off air have been like, oh well, I wasn't always in favour of gay marriage, but then now like. But, they, but hold on, see, I mean. Not everybody, but nearly everybody's changed their mind about that. Yeah, My exactly. dad probably has in 88. But that's <laughs> what I was going to say. Um, like uh, the, but, but actually, one interesting thing you see is, if you look at um, uh, the difference between age groups, one interesting thing about being 53 in an ad agency where everybody's about 12, you're all... <laughs> yeah, you're I'm all right. I index it to you, Ori. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ditto us. Yeah. 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 It's cute, isn't it? I'm slightly freaked out. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of the things you've got to remember is, is what you might call chronological context in this polarisation yeah. question, yeah. which is if you are 55, now, but it's worth remembering if you would suggest, by the way, one gay marriage actually arose as a campaign out of the Conservative movement. Yeah. Interestingly. Uh, it was a guy writing for a conservative publication in the US. What, in the modernisation agenda? Uh, it, was, uh, was it, it was a guy who wrote, was it the guy who edited National Review? Um, he was a, a sort of gay libertarian conservative, yeah. and, his, uh, and the actual movement arose from the right. Uh, secondly, it's, uh, if you tell my children that uh, votes for women happened under a conservative government, for example, yeah. or that gay marriage was legalised under a conservative government. I think homosexuality was legalised under a conservative government, right? Well, the conservative government was the first to have a female prime minister as well. And yeah, first, but uh, some of it came through under bills that were, you know, led by people from no, no, the no, no, no. I, I mean, no, I agree. Roy, Roy, Roy Jenkins was probably get... instrumental in terms of the... I'm yeah. not taking away the Lib Dem contribution. Oh, but believe me, I'm happy to kick, kick the hell into the Lib Dems any time. There's no party loyalty left for you.
And now what you see is that in terms of attitudes to homosexuality, uh, in terms of attitudes to ethnicity, most people over a period of 30 or 40 years have changed their mind. Unsurprisingly, there are some people more rural, more isolated, older, who haven't, okay? And so you regard it as a problem that is essentially on the way to being solved. It won't be completely solved ever, but it's one in which in the course of your life, a lot of change has taken place. But what happened to change? We were talking about this last night with Rob Black. What, what, what was it that changed people's minds on gay marriage? Um, Do we know that? I don't know is the answer to that question, because we should know. It's some, yeah. um, the person who would be good at explaining it is probably Nicholas Christakis, which is that, that um, first of all, most people knew someone came to know someone who was openly and outwardly gay, yeah. which wouldn't have been the case... Um, yeah. you know, 30 years beforehand. 30 years beforehand. Yeah. So yeah. personal experience. Personal experience. Am I frightened? I've got two 17-year-old daughters. Am I frightened of them getting, um, uh, getting in with druggies? Um, the answer would be, um, if the problem with drugs isn't really that you take drugs, it's that you hang out with people who are druggies, okay? Now, hanging out with smokers and drinkers doesn't really narrow your social options, okay? But if you're massively into crack... Yeah. Kind of, you know, I mean, Is this the start of a confession? If you're just an absolute crack okay? You will hang out with the people with people who by definition are... Because you tend to hang out with people who share your addictions or your predilections or whatever it may be. And... You know, the more niche the thing is, the more it puts you on the fringes of society. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, you know, the great problem would be if you're into really serious drugs, you end up hanging out with people who are into really serious drugs. And actually, maybe it's not the drugs that frighten me, it's the social milieu you have to get into. Yeah. And so once you, you know, things in their very early stages, you know, I think if you legalise cannabis, I don't think, you know, I've got very little to worry about. If cannabis is illegal, I've got much more to worry about about my daughters getting into cannabis because it might mean they hang out with people who are on the fringes yeah. of legality. Mm. Well, what it does okay. as well is it creates its own feedback loops that kind of then perpetuate behaviour. And it made me think before that, does social media do that? that when you create your own feedback loops with the information that you see or the people that you follow, does that then take you down the rabbit hole and therefore that makes your opinion harder to change? Absolutely. So have you heard the example YouTube, their, um, their algorithms, if you watch a, a video on YouTube, mm. their algorithms will instantly show you automatically yes. a more extreme version of, of the video you've just watched. But if, oh, wow. if you think about any sort of fan-based behaviour... We um, signal our devotion to the group by yeah. making our devotion more extreme yeah. than that of the people around us. No one ever stands in the middle of a sort of Liverpool crowd and goes, I quite like Liverpool football. But that is normal. <coughs> you know, we, are, we are hardwired. You know, we want to be part of a group and belong. That motivation yeah. to belong to a group and have that shared is really, really powerful. You know, what binds us, but unfortunately what binds us also blinds us, which is what creates those... Of course, those most divides. people aren't that interested in politics, by the way. It's, it's, it, the people who bricked you were Labour Party activists. They weren't just ordinary Labour voters. It's worth remembering that. Yeah. And most people don't define themselves in political terms. It's a weird thing that people do 
uh, you know, a, a particular cast of people do. Well, yeah, well, my, the highest compliment people give to me is you you seem really normal. You do not seem really <laughs> conservative. I'm like, great, thanks. Take that as a take that very much as a compliment. But what, I mean, what, the very fact that it's considered weird in a workplace to support a political party which is supported by about 44% of the population, I know, generally, yeah. is slightly weird. Mm, yeah. uh, and London is, London is, of course, a highly anomalous. Yeah. in lots and lots of ways. I would generally say you don't get that level of... If you have a political debate in Birmingham, it's comparatively sane. Yeah. Um, also because Brummies are just generally more sensible than Brummies. There's a hell of a lot of signalling that goes on, because if you think about it, everybody has moved there from somewhere else. Yeah. And so everybody reinvents themselves to an extent that isn't allowed to you if you grow up. Yeah in the same place where you're born. Yeah. And so you always get frenetic levels of kind of signalling and, and um, identity signalling yeah. um, in, 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 a, in, in a city of that kind. Um, and the signalling thing is a problem too, because generally um, uh, the urge to signal things... So often the way to solve a problem, and I include poverty in this, by the way, the way to solve poverty is probably oblique. I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't involve transfers of money, but the way it's done, there is the way there is the solution you adopt if you want to show you care about the problem, and there's a solution you adopt if you want to solve the problem, and they're not often the same thing. And so there's a huge danger about signalling, which is governments will adopt policies not on the basis of any evidence that they're effective, but because they prove you care. And they're signalling. And so this signalling problem, and anything involving signalling tends to lead to that, it's actually called Fisherian runaway signalling from the chap Fisher and the stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the problem with signalling, as distinct yeah. from problem solving, is that it leads people to try and outdo each other. And that can be anything from designer sunglasses or cars or yeah. whatever, or watches, to political opinions. Yeah. That the, uh, the, the urge to prove how much you care drives you to more and more extreme positions. Yeah. And um, you're absolutely right about this, by the way, that um, uh, the, the extent to which left-wing people have completely lost the capacity to understand people on the right, it's partly because I would argue that right-wing preferences are also slightly more visceral than left-wing ones. So it's very easy to use a rational... I, one of the arguments, one of the things I rejected about Brexit was the idea that you didn't have rational economic arguments for leaving did not mean there wasn't a good case to leave. It simply meant that the case to remain was either more mathematically quantifiable or economic, or it was easier to voice. Okay, but you know, um, uh, you might argue that conservatives navigate a bit more using the amygdala. Yes. And yeah. Well, well, that's John Height's point, isn't it? As well. Yeah. They appear, they appear to people's core values and motivations, which the left doesn't. Yeah, it's much more ideological and higher up. What you've got to recognise is that reason is actually a very late evolutionary adaptation, which came about because we're a social species. And we developed a faculty of reason. And this is Sperber and Mercier, two French guys. Yeah. The faculty of reason evolved not to aid us in making decisions. Because if you think about it, dogs, you know, plants, um, monkeys, all get along perfectly well and survive perfectly well simply acting on instinct. Mm. Okay. Reason came along basically to enable us to argue our case, defend our behaviour, or pick holes in other people's arguments or behaviour. It didn't really evolve to inform decisions. No. And it evolved to win arguments rather than to win. Okay. And as a result, okay, as a byproduct, we've been able to produce Saturn V rockets and so forth. And in the field of engineering, where you can completely mathematicize the definition of success, 
you know, deploying scientific reason and logic has proved hugely successful. Economics is an attempt to deploy to to reduce something as complex as human behaviour to, to a exactly nice model. that same mm -hmm. model. Yeah, yeah. And as a result, in order to do that, they make assumptions about how humans think, decide yeah. and act, which yeah. are ridiculous. Yeah, truly ridiculous. You want the problems of the world economy in a couple of few sentences, OK? Yeah. The problem with manufacturing is you can do it anywhere. So wherever you do manufacturing, there's somewhere else in the world where they'll do it cheaper. Mm -hmm. So you can't make any yeah. money. Yeah. The problem with a service industry is you can only make money in a service industry if you're in one of seven enormous cities. And if you're making money in an enormous city, the landowner makes all the money, effectively, because the property costs soak up your salary, so you can't make any money either. The only way to make money, I think, is to get a London job and to live in Sheffield and do it by video conferencing. <laughs> that, would, that would really work. But in, okay, in defence, one of the things about London I find funny is that when I did move there in the late 80s, okay, in fairness, there was a level of entertainment, stimulation, um, shopping, etc., food, yeah. that was an order of magnitude more exciting than the rest of the country. Now, a few things happened. One, it is possible to get latte outside the M25. Two, of course, the internet happened. And so the deficiency you suffered living further away from a big city in terms of retail opportunities and all those things is inordinately less. So, you know, where's the best bookshop in the world? Well, it isn't in a place anymore. It's on a screen, okay? You know, now, I, you know, growing up in the Welsh borders, if you grew up in Lingibby, if you wanted to buy anything a bit weird, it was basically Cardiff, Bristol, maybe Cheltenham, wasn't it? Which, which, which one were you, by the way? Or, oh. Newport was good for anything utilitarian, obviously. Oh, quid's in, quid to get in, quid for every drink. Um, <laughs> Newport was pretty good for weird stuff, actually, down Newport Market. Yeah, the music scene and, was fantastic. And yeah. Cumbran and free parking, which obviously <laughs> meant that was about as far as I went, really. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, but um, bits of all, not generally not Bristol, but any of the others. But it is, it is interesting that actually, you know, in terms of access to entertainment, stimulation, indeed education, I mean, the fact that the, um, one of the things I've massively changed my mind on is I've become a devotee of this idea that uh, further education is mostly signalling, it's mostly credentialism, and that it's a kind of racket, it's not really adding human capital. Hang on, so you were pro further education? And now you change your mind. Uh, no, I think I, I, I'm not. I'm not against further education yeah. as a way of um, actually civilizing yourself, yeah. making yourself more culture, more cultured, yeah. and uh, more capable of just enjoying a wide range of uh, uh, of cultural pleasures. Yeah. I'm obviously not, not not opposed to it in fields like brain surgery. Okay? Yeah. I'm not suggesting we should uh, we should have like Uber for brain surgery, <laughs> which is well, you know, we were talking about this Uber for anaesthetists the other day, which is oh actually I haven't got much on for the next half hour, I think I'll just, do, you know, do a bit of anaesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, there are certain things, by the way, you have to make a big commitment, you have to specialise, yeah. you have to learn. Law would be another case, probably. Yeah. Um, uh, although it's also a bit of a racket, a bit of a credentialist racket, to be absolutely honest. Um, but actually, if you, um, to a great extent, university is not being used to civilise people. Which, I mean, I know that sounds weird, OK? I went 84 to 88. And I went to Cambridge, what, in the, yeah, 84. You didn't assume you were going to become rich as a result of going there. Mm -hmm. You weren't going there to get a well-paid job. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I know that sounds really weird. I mean, you were conscious of the fact that having been there, you weren't going to be skint because you could always get a job as a training accountant on the basis of an Oxbridge degree. But you didn't see it as principally a means of enriching yourself by going there. You went there because you kind of wanted to and you wanted to meet some interesting people and you were quite interested in the subject you studied. 
Okay. Now I think it's become vocationalized where the level of your degree is treated as a proxy for your IQ, mm. more of which later, mm. and that it's essentially being used as, uh, as a ludicrous um, proxy in terms of whom to hire uh, by employers, where its predictive value is actually very low. Yeah, which is why you should use blind CVs. Um, actually, yeah, we actually well, have... Conscious a... bias, we do a lot. Like the, the way, the context with which you analyse CVs affects the decisions that you make. Mm. And so, no, and, and actually what's, what's happened, which I think is wrong, is uh, if you think about it, the order in which you make choices has a huge effect on the choices you make. So uh, I would joke, joke and say, if you produced a thing like Right Move for art, right? Now, the weird thing is, I, I always notice that architecture in houses is grotesquely undervalued. If you want to buy art, just buy a fantastic piece of architecture and live in it. Because it's much, much cheaper than buying a painting. Because the premium you pay is tiny. You know, there's a Gropius building in Notting Hill for sale. There are Frank Lloyd Wright buildings all over the US. They're not much more expensive than the building next door by some indifferent crapster. Okay. Now, the reason partly is that where we choose property, we go, okay, um, you know, it's postcode district, price band, number of bedrooms, has it got a garden, flat or a house, you know. Um, yeah. and we don't even use an intelligent American measure like square foot size so you end up with places with four bedrooms that are barely habitable and only one loo you know because mm. that distorts the market mm. as well the fact yeah. that we have number of bedrooms yeah. um, now if you as a result you then get presented with five and you probably choose the least ugly one of the five if you reverse that and you go to a website like the modernhouse.net um, there's another one called wow house I think yeah. a bit like wow house Okay, which puts architectural um, magnificence as the sine qua known, and then you have to choose the other things later, you'll end up with a house probably three miles further away than where you expected, or even ten, but it'll be architecturally amazing, because yeah. of the order of elimination. Okay. Now, if we chose art the way we chose architecture, we go, okay, I want a house, I want a painting, sorry. It's about, yeah, let's make it about six by three, landscape format, uh, mostly blue with a bit of green, and I like it to be painted in France and to feature three trees and a cow. Okay. Under those circumstances, Picassos would be really cheap because they wouldn't be, because the artist himself wouldn't be used as a prime discriminator. Yeah. And what employers are doing, which is appalling, is they're using university degree class as the prime discriminator. So I met someone, where I realise this is bullshit, Taleb also thinks it's bullshit, Brian Kaplan thinks it's signalling bullshit, uh, there's another guy, actually Robin Hansen, who wrote a book with Kevin Simler called The Elephant in the Brain, he thinks it's bullshit, basically. Okay, now, the, where you, I met someone who'd got a lower second class degree in maths from Cambridge who couldn't get a job interview. Mm. Okay, this is okay. This is just mm. shit, right? Because you know, I've you know, I've worked here for thirty years. I'm the vice chairman of the company. I've never really come across a problem of such mathematical intensity. <laughs> okay, I mean, I'm a hell of a lot of what I learned in maths, like geometry and fucking surface area. Like <laughs> Which weirdly is part of the test that you have to do to be able to get in to do your master's degree at places in the states. What the surface yeah, area? Yeah, the, the GMAT and the GRE. I had to learn learn again how to calculate the surface area and the volume of a sphere. So the GMAT I have no never used that's the SAT for older for for post for postgrads for MBA program that I did. Yeah, then the GRE is a bit more um, wordy. Now, now, so here's a really interesting question, which is: Is using education as a proxy 
Okay, first of all, this is absurd that someone will lower second. Because I said, look, if we had anything that difficult, you'd know a lot of people who got a first in maths, so you can ring them up and ask. I said, you know, I'm not really, you know. But using this, if you imagine, okay, is this just, is educational quality also, if it is reliable at all, which it may not be, okay, uh, Google found it had very little predictive value. But even so, what if it's only predictive in one way? So what about the false negatives? So A, we all know people in a business like advertising, you come across people who aren't very good academically because they don't like doing theoretical things. But if you give them a practical problem, they exhibit you know, signs of genius, yeah. okay? Because there's an actual outcome. Yeah. There's a practical outcome. It's not just theory. And the second parallel I always use is, let's imagine you use chess as a proxy, chess playing ability. Now, uh, I'm, uh, I've never played chess, no, I'll just put it I out there. I can't stand it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm never shit, but now, I don't know, and weirdly, I don't know if I'm any good at chess simply because I don't enjoy it enough to find out. That's the first problem. But secondly, yes, you could confidently say that someone who's really good at chess is probably pretty bright in some way. Okay, yeah. and if you're seriously, you know, if you're seriously good chess player, it's highly unlikely that you're mentally deficient. Okay, yeah. but you couldn't say the opposite. You couldn't say someone who's bad at chess is therefore stupid. Now, the, I think we should deploy the same thing with looking at academia as, and its predictive value, which is its predictive value, if it exists, is also dangerous because it only works in one direction. Mm. Now, Taleb goes further than this. I don't know if you spotted this on uh, online, but it's he says the whole IQ thing is bullshit because it looks as if IQ correlates with life outcome, but it only works at the left-hand side of the curve. So if you have a markedly low IQ, you know, it's unlikely you'll, you know, you'll make it big in life, right? But the correlation once you get above sort of, I mean, even sort of fairly low marks, like 75, 80, really starts to break down until it becomes absolutely, you know, maybe there's something going on with high energy physics where you've got to, you know, you've got to have a very, very high IQ to do it. Um, yeah. Although, having said that, interestingly, old, um, uh, um, you know, one of those brilliant physicists, the Nobel Prize winner Richard Feynman, claimed he had an IQ of 125, which is nothing, you know, in physics, is nothing that special. Yeah. David Ogilvy had an IQ of 97, when he did oh, a wow. test. Now, if you think about it, there are a lot of proxies we're using all over the place, which look impressive if you use correlation, but correlation doesn't work under non-linearity. No. Okay. So it's now, furious. So I'll give you a perfect example of this. If you wanted to um, recruit, if you couldn't recruit, now the way we recruit football players, right, for the Premiership, is by watching them play football, okay? Now, if you want to recruit advertising people, don't discover how good they are at writing essays on the Delian Confederacy. Mm. Get them to do some fucking ads. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay? So is that what you do? Uh, well, we have the pipe, which is exactly that. We, we, some of them are graduates, by the way, we recruit yeah. through the pipe, because with 50% of people graduating, it would be stupid to make it a non-graduate scheme. The summer school is the same, isn't it? We give uh, our summer school is, yeah. We give them a, a test of, yeah. some, you know, can you come up with a creative and interesting solution Here's to this problem? problem. Yeah. Yeah. And we recruit people on the basis of doing what we want them to do. Do. And the spectator has a fantastic intern Which scheme. Brilliant. Like yeah. I mean, it's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and what's that? What, what is so, in effect, do they do it like as a well? They don't care where you went to university. Yeah. They don't get any of that background shit. They literally assess you on a written submission, and so they'll get very often people who are interested in journalism and maybe didn't go because they had caring responsibilities, and they're really bright and talented, and they've observed different things. So, whereas before they were hiring, you know, highly predictable Oxbridge yeah. twenty-four-year-olds, one of their latest um, recruits was a sort of forty-three-year-old yeah. mum. Yeah. Yeah. Which is brilliant, because the other thing about universities is it's not giving people second chances. 
What you want is not equality of opportunity, you want plurality of opportunity. You want to give people... Now, the attempt of socialism to make things fair is actually counterproductive. Because in attempting to make something fair, you deploy the same criteria to everybody, and therefore, you're only selecting for one very narrow proxy measure. There are two problems with that. You waste a load of talent which just doesn't do very well on the proxy. Mm. Okay, That's the first problem. The, the, the second problem is that uh, middle-class wankers game the system as well. Because people with time and resources, can, just as you can, you know, I mean, the American cheating scandal getting into university. Yeah, to say, well, the whole grammar school thing. Yeah, so you, you move into a catchment area. Or you can area. pay tuition. You can pay tuition. Oh, by the way, the, I, I talk to people, and this is an area where, you know, in a sense, society's got uh, nastier. I talked to someone who took the 11 plus in Kent in what I suppose must have been the 1960s. And he said, we, we turned up one day at school and they said, we've got a test for you. You, didn't, you know, that's, that's how it happened, he said. Nobody had prepared me for this, no one had tutored for this. And in fact, most people didn't tutor for it because you accepted that this was a fair... Now what happens is that middle-class people... There's no way you pass the 11-plus in Kent without being trained for the 11-plus. The state schools don't train for it because they're not supposed to. The private schools all do. Yeah. But it's bullshit. Yeah. It's a big, stinking heap of shit. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? And it's an attempt to make things fair, which visibly looks fair, which is applying the same criteria. If I hire someone, if someone came along who got a shit degree, but they were, you know, at Britain's under-16 backgammon championship, mm. champion, yeah. right? Would I interview them? Of course I fucking would. They're fucking remarkable at something. Yeah. Let's find out, let's find yeah. out more about yeah. them. Now, you know, I'm not, I'm not dissing academic qualifications or capability. You know, if you're very academically capable, you're capable at least at something. Yeah. You, you might also argue the fact that you're massively in debt makes you an extremely docile employee. Because you're not going to spend, you know, you could argue, if you were the chap, David Graeber, who wrote Bullshit Jobs, <laughs> you could argue that this is actually set up to create a form of indentureship or wage slavery. Because if you think about it, you're not going to spend £27,000 getting a degree so you can get a job at J.P. Morgan and then turn up and make any trouble. You're not going to start nicking yeah. staplers or photocopying your ass. You're going to be extremely docile because you spent three years and 30 grand getting into this position. By the way, very simple solution to this. I mean, you can solve it. This is, this is where we're different. We're an ad agency. We don't just identify the problems. We come up with solutions. <laughs> One... You have to reserve about 20% of all university places to people over the age of 26. And the reason is, there needs to be a completely acceptable narrative for anybody who doesn't want to go to university to say, I'm not planning to go now, I want to go later, when I know what I want to study. You know, after five or six years of work, yeah, what I wish I'd done is two years at university, and then, you know, maybe a year doing behavioural science somewhere, when I finally knew 15 years later what I was interested in. Okay, so you have to create this choice thing where it isn't the norm, because at the moment what the university is doing is they're placing a big badge over the head of anybody who hasn't been to university. And those people need a narrative escape, yeah. which is, I'm planning to go later. Okay, the second thing is, you have the, exactly the same university loan system as you do at present, but you can spend the money on anything, not just education. Because it isn't a market if you can only spend the money on one thing. Once you create a highly generous loan, which you can only spend on education, everybody is forced to spend. Let's imagine, okay, right. So imagine the government is the scheme which says poor people 
um, don't do very well at interview because they're not turning up in fancy suits. What would happen if the government said, we'll lend you all £4,000 to spend on um, interview clothes? Yeah. Is actually everybody would have to spend £4,000 because if you spent less, if you didn't turn up yeah. in Savile Road bespoke, you'd yeah. look like you weren't trying. And rich people would then spend seven. And now you have this ludicrous runaway problem where people say, oh, an MPhil's like the new BA, and a PhD is the new MPhil. And you get jobs which are requiring not just you know, a degree, they're requiring, requiring a second one. Now, look, if you, want to, if you want to learn about doing something, do it. Don't do some ludicrous, you know, vaguely, peripherally connected thing. And so a lot of this has arisen from attempts to make the world fairer have actually had unintended consequences, which is they've actually made the world worse. So, so how... I was going to say, sorry, we, No, please go I was going to say, how would an ad agency approach this problem of polarisation? So we've got these extremes happening in the UK and US. I, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but, you know, I basically turn up, like if, if the BBC says we want to interview someone, I'll quite often say, yeah, I'll turn up, that's fine. Now, I'm in a company, in a very weird position, in that I'm in a small company which just accepts the fact that I've been around for 30 years and I'm going to do that kind of shit. If you're in a large private sector corporation, that would require like four days of preparation and agreement before you made a media appearance, okay? Oh, yeah. For <laughs> so whatever reason, okay, go, I mean, imagine if, okay, where you work, if you just said, oh, I'm just doing an interview with the Daily Mail, they would go into meltdown, wouldn't they, right? You couldn't just turn up and have a chat. With my work, Howard, no. No. Well, as, I, as I'm my own boss, I could, I could agree it very quickly, but yes. Point taken. Okay, so there's a very small number of people who actually appear on the media. They never ask working class people who have... Now, if you want to know about immigration, why don't you ask a customs officer? If you want to know about crime, why don't you ask a cop? They never do yeah. that. They ask the professor of criminology at the University yeah, of Glass. So is it Sydney? And the reason is that the university basically, although, you know, if you're a university academic, you can basically pitch up and just spout off with complete freedom. The second you're part of a large institution, you have to remain silent. And so the viewpoint we get is disproportionately one. Um, you know, I mean, it's very, very interesting. If you talk to anybody um, who actually has direct experience of something, their viewpoint is always much more nuanced than that of an academic. Here's what happens if you're making a bloody radio programme. You don't want nuance. You want two people with opposing yeah. positions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of LBC's approach to neutrality, which is you basically have right-wing programmes and you have left-wing programmes. It's not as simple as that, because obviously people yeah. phone in. Mm. So you can't control the narrative anyway, because people phone in with all kinds of eccentric ideas. But they also phone in with interesting ideas. But broadly speaking, the Nick Ferrari show is right of centre and James O'Brien is left of centre. Um, you know, and you could probably plot, you know, you've got a Farage show, after all, you know, okay? So you could probably plot each yeah. programme as having a, you know, a, a, I wouldn't call it a bias, it would just have... Now, interestingly, if you have a right-wing programme, you get a nuance of right-wing opinions. The needs of journalists to create a scrap between two opposing viewpoints effectively yeah. emphasises this binary problem. And so there, and there are lots of things going on, but actually, if we had, um, um, there's also a problem, by the way, which is that um, nearly all centre-right opinion in print is paywalled. Yeah. So that, it's interesting what you said, Roy, about um, people wanting the opposite opinion, uh, especially Alex and Ali. Do you think people actually want polarisation? It's something that humans have a tendency to find exciting. 
Um, I don't think it's so much necessarily wanting polarisation. Yeah, I think it's a consequence a, a of wanting property. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. wanting people getting dopamine hits from the um, uh, <coughs> people agreeing with them and from you know what you were saying about signalling, and so you end up in effect assorted matching and spending more time with people who you agree with. When well, you want to be part of a group. Yeah. Especially yeah. when the world is increasingly uncertain and changing, it gives yeah. you comfort to belong. And we don't, yeah, we don't really reward people who give nuance, you know, in the same way that it doesn't make for good TV. Like, we're not good at doing I'll, that. I'll, I'll tell you what, I learned this very, very um, quickly, which was fascinating, which was, I was the first person in Britain to have my credit card details stolen online. <laughs> and it was completely trivial. My bank rang me up and said, we've just had someone buy £600 worth of RAM on your credit card. Is that you? No. Uh, how do you think they might have got your number? Well, I was just online buying something, you know, shortly beforehand. Yeah. Someone must have taken it. So suddenly, because this was an interesting story, and by the way, there's an inherent negativity bias in press. Because if you've got a bad news story, it's called journalism, and you get to put your story in for free. Bad news sells. If you've got good news, it's called advertising, and you've got to pay. You know, yeah. If there's a new Ford Fiesta, you've got to pay a lot of money to tell people about that. You know, If you do anything new that's an improvement in life, any of the improvements in capitalism, you have to pay to tell people about them. Whereas if there's some kind of Woodward and Bernstein, you know, yeah. uh, miserable scandal, uh, there are loads of journalists who will happily write about that for free. But that is also what people want to read and what they engage with. Ish, ish. It's, um, I mean... The extent to which it's, uh, yeah, it probably sells papers on the front yeah. page. I'm not sure. I mean, I was in Malaysia once, where they have basically state-controlled the, yeah. the, the New Straits Times. And I was reading the newspaper, and I was completely confused, because there was a news headline which, I mean, literally said something like, New Road to the Airport will make it easier to get to the airport. Mm. Well, that's really nice. And I was reading the whole article, and it pointed out how the new road made it much quicker to go to the airport, and before it was a problem, but the new road made it a lot better. I was going, well, where's the woman whose house has been knocked down? Where, you know, where are the rare newts? That have, you know, where's the negative story? And then, of course, there wasn't one. Yeah. And my friend came over and said, you do realise that's a total propaganda sheet, do you? And I said, well, in that case, I rather like it. <laughs> because you actually get to read a positive angle on something where you don't always have to give credence to the world's most disgruntled participant. Yeah. Um, but we do we do tend to see the world of thing in, in kind of black and white rather than shades of grey. So the nuance it is hard, and the way that journalism sets up stories plays into that black and white worldview. Yeah, it does. Rather than the grey nuance, and which is much more realistic. But and giving people the the tools to do that because the context will define it. So everyone argues on the timeline in Twitter, but then they'll make up in the DMs because you're not losing status, mm. you're not losing reputation anymore. I think there are also experiments where there are actually quite left-wing... I mean, if you noticed, I mentioned the problem of property prices in, in cities, OK? Yeah. Now, that's actually sort of Georgist economic argument, yeah. that the gains go to the land. Now, I'm actually pretty... You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually centre-right conservative and fairly bog-standard conservative, but I'm pretty sympathetic with the Georgist argument that you should tax property. Um, uh, and I also think you should tax wealth as well as just earnings. Um, do you know the country with, a, I think it's in the developed world, with about the second or third highest wealth inequality? Sweden. Now, everybody wow. imagines it's an egalitarian paradise, but about ten families own half the country. Basically. Yeah. Mm. Mr. Ikea man and Mr. Nobel <laughs> man, and there's Media man and there's Volvo, you know, even just man. Yeah. Now, of course, one of the problems we have very high taxation is you don't get much opportunity to uh, wealth redistribution, because there's a limit to how much you can earn. 
Um, now, you know, I, I do favour that you should tax wealth as well as just uh, salary. Uh, I also clamp down, one thing the right's been remiss on is you've got to clamp down on tax avoidance and evasion um, uh, to an extraordinary degree. Don't just make it an economic question of how much does it cost to recover this money. By the way, which would pay enormously. Oh, it always does, yeah. It always pays, okay. But I mean, the fact that, we, that we've been remiss in allowing people these various tax avoidance schemes is shameful. The yeah. loophole thing. I'd also clamp down on things like, you know, trusts and avoidance of inheritance tax, um, which also seem to me profoundly inimical. Because, I mean, and by the way, you, what you discover when you take these views is there are people like Nixon who favoured a guaranteed basic income. Milton Friedman, I think, favoured inheritance taxes. You know, the the the... the the, the, the people who give rise to the dogma aren't as dogmatic as their followers become. Yeah. Just, you know, just as Marxists are much more bonkers than Marx. Yeah, yeah if you could say one thing, one piece of advice, if we wanted very to quick. change somebody's mind, what would you very quickly say to me? Uh, hang out with a great variety of people. I'd say find the common ground. So what, what's common amongst you, not what's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really? and I, I build on both of that and make sure that you have the conversation begins with that common ground yeah. and then you find it much easier to disagree because you've already got something that you agree on. And there's a guy called Nicholas Gruen uh, who believes in kind of sortation, which is you have citizens' assemblies which are selected by lot. Mm. So you actually get a representative idea of, of opinion. Yeah. Um, there are some drawbacks th- with that as well, though. There are drawbacks, undoubtedly, yeah. I think there's also a drawback, which is that um, a lot of conservative instinct is based on uh, what you might call caution, or the precautionary principle, which is... Um, uh, there is one huge problem, by the way, which is another divide, which is not a political divide, which is the political caste have become excessively technocratic. They're all drawn from the nerdy, dweebier classes of people. Mm. And one of the reasons people voted for Trump wasn't necessarily because they saw him as right-wing, but they saw him as non-nerdy. Yeah. You, if you wanted something different, yeah. you went for Trump. You didn't go for Clinton. Well, yeah. well, well, well. Sorry, <laughs> um, we hope we have all changed your mind today. Uh, where can everyone find your podcast? Um, so you find the details on depolarizationproject.com or also on Open Democracy. We share and incidentally, by the way, your podcast title contains the answer to your final question, which is if you repeatedly ask yourself the question, what have I changed my mind on? And if I haven't changed my mind on anything, I'm not thinking hard enough. Yeah. Um, that's a perfectly reasonable approach. One thing we've all changed our mind on, Rory, what have you changed your mind about? Uh, I'm pretty, um, IQ. IQ. Uh, Nassim, that was, uh, you know, uh, 48 hours of statistics. Uh, where I suddenly realised, if you think about it, that all proxies have a danger in that they can look reliable simply because they work at one end. Mm. So let's imagine you couldn't test out premiership footballers by making them play football, okay? And you use cricket as a proxy for footballing ability. Now, at the bottom end, that would work, because someone who's totally shit at cricket probably wouldn't make it as a premiership footballer. I think, you know, I think we can, you know, just as someone who's good at chess is probably reasonably bright. You couldn't say the opposite. You couldn't say that someone who is brilliant at cricket or baseball would make a fan. You know, I don't know what you know Messi's bowling ability is like, but it wouldn't be a reliable way of actually finding out who's best. And the problem with the single proxy measure... I've got a dog in this fight, by the way, because my great-great-aunt actually worked at Princeton with a guy called Brian, who's the professor who, who actually designed the first SAT. Oh, yeah. She was a Brit. Um, I think I was, you know. <laughs> um, it would be okay if you were. But she worked in that and she was doing, and um, she was sceptical, interestingly. Yeah. But um, 
it's a really um, what's, what I suddenly realise is if you apply the same criteria to everybody it looks fair okay and to some extent it is fair the consequences are actually dire because the uh, the waste you what's brilliant about capitalism is that a company like this only a thousand people but what makes it good as a company is lots of people with complementary abilities what you've got when you use education or a single mode of selection is you end up with homogeneity and then within homogeneity it forces people to extremes yeah thank you okay. for that short answer Rory uh, <laughs> Alex sorry I, I, I used to be programmer schools and now programmer schools Ali yeah. I used to think investing in the public arts was completely pointless and now I think it's quite a good use of Funding. Nice. Pow, pow. Um, taking the tube instead of the bus, I'd rather take something more regularly than something that's quicker. Amazing. And mine is James Corden. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, you can follow us at Ogilvy Consult UK on Twitter or don't forget to check out our blog, o-behave.tumblr.com. Uh, finally, big thank you to Sound Lounge and Julian Goodkind for the music. Until next time, bye.